Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Ah, welcome back to Heard Tell. I'm Andrew Donaldson. So glad you're with us. It's the most precious thing you have, your time, and we're not going to want to waste a minute of it. we got a few stories of the news we want to turn down the noise on, get to some good information, and see if we can't discern the times we live in just a little bit better. Uh, we're going to start with a story that I feel like I'm repeating myself because we just did this with some other overseas news uh, over in Italy, this time in Brazil. They had themselves an election. It's going to a runoff. They're going to do it again in a couple of weeks, but uh, they had an election. So here's the precursor, the same thing we said about Italy last week. No, you don't know very much about Brazilian politics unless you're from Brazil, have studied it extensively, or talked to a whole bunch of people down there. That's okay. See, that wasn't hard. I just, I don't know much about Brazilian politics. There's a couple of people we know that are friends of ours in Brazil. I can reach out to them through social media and other things and say, hey, what do you think about this? But I don't know much about Brazilian politics. See, that was easy. Didn't hurt a bit. That's a lot better than what's going on on social media and in our news media right now, where they are just slamming the ongoing narratives of American political discourse into this election. Now, part of this is because the sitting president, Bolsonaro, I'm probably saying that name wrong. Apologize. The problem here is Bolsonaro has been completely and utterly paralleled to Trump at every turn in American media. Now, there's some things that are probably parallel there. There's a whole lot that's different. Number one, that he's Brazilian. Number two, it's a whole different system of government down there. Number three, they do things very, very differently. Number four, to my knowledge, Donald Trump does not speak Brazilian Portuguese. That list, by the way, goes down hundreds of things. They're not the same people, even though they may have a few tendencies that cross over. So no, he is not Donald Trump and Donald Trump is not him. We have very lazy news media and we have very lazy social media people. So that's the thing. Oh, he's the new Donald Trump. Now, he's got a lot of issues. If you look at the data in this election for an incumbent person to get the numbers he's getting falling off means there's a big uprising in that country of folks that want to get rid of him. No, Internet people, this is not the CIA's doing. Just stop. it. If the CIA was a fraction as efficient at doing things in the world as Twitter thinks it is, they'd rule the entire world. They don't stop it. With Brazil, with Italy last week, with whatever country has an election in a few weeks we'll talk about then, with our own elections coming up in the midterms, every state's a little different. That's why we have election experts come on the program. It's okay to just admit you don't know. It's even better to know that you don't know and not slam some narrative that you do know a little bit about or maybe even less of on top of it. It ends up spreading more bad information. It may make you look silly on top of it, and nobody ever really learns things because if all you're doing 
is shoving all new information through the same old square peg and the round information coming out of it all looks the same because all you think about is American politics with no other perspective, you're going to get the same thing over and over again. You're not learning anything. You're just regurgitating. That's why we take a broad perspective here. That's why we talk to people overseas. That's why we talk to people of all political stripes on this program. It's okay to get challenged on things. It's okay to get descending points of views. And when it comes to things like Brazilian politics, it's okay. Just put your hand up and go, I don't have the foggiest. What's going on down there? Let's get some good information and talk about it, which we're going to try to do when this goes to the runoff in the second stage of these elections. We're going to reach out to a few of our Brazilian friends, see if we can get one of them on the program like we do with our British friends and German friends and other people overseas. We work hard to get contacts in other places because we don't know about that big wide world out there. But it's important to talk about it, especially with an American media, news media and social media that is only obsessed with what's going on in America right this second. Tunnel vision's bad. Wide perspective's great. We're going to keep working toward the wide perspective. That starts with going, I don't know anything about Brazilian politics. So let's go learn it together, slowly, with good information, and not sound silly on the Twitter.com or on the Facebook page. More Hertel, right after this. Welcome back to Hertel. Okay, this is one that I never thought I'd be saying out loud, but here goes. The Taliban has banned a video game for being too violent. No, seriously, uh, for Military Times, you can't spell Taliban without ban. Boy, that writer really earned their pay on that one. And the current Afghan regime continues to live up to that reputation, and then some, this time forming a blocking, a platform that once brought joys to the masses. Within the next three months, the Taliban will eliminate Afghans' access to the online video game Player Unknown Battleground, which is the nation's new leadership characterized as promoting violence and misleading youth, according to the uh, mouthpiece press of the regime. The decision to block access to the game was made by the country's Minister of Telecommunications following deliberations with the national security sector and a representative from the Sharia Law Enforcement Administration, perhaps the most robust coalition of video games are to blame boomers in human history. According to local reports, the regime has called the game a, quote, source of national moral panic for some time. It is also responsible for commandeering Internet servers throughout the country, occasionally drawing upwards of 100,000 Afghan gamers at once and reflecting the game's soaring popularity among teenagers, especially Afghan joins Pakistan and India's other countries to ban the game. An Afghan news report service indicated they also include an imminent ban to the social media platform TikTok. Taliban has now banned more than 23 million websites and seized control of the country since August of 2021, often citing immoral content. As such, the use of VPNs has become increasingly popular tools to bypass online restrictions. The, they are the changing their pages every day, the Taliban Minister of Communications uh, told them. So when you block one website, another will activate. Here's to the VPNs and the Internet, the modern-day Hydra of Lerna. That was written by John Simpkins, a little tongue-in-cheek, but a serious thing. Look, yeah, banning video games isn't the biggest thing in the world. Things like banning girls from going to school, the brutalization of women, the murder, and outright 
slaughter of all their enemies when they took back the country. This is a brutal, repressive regime and long-suffering Afghanistan people, some of which is our fault, by the way, and we've said so before, is mounting. And them taking away video games is just a small slice of it, and although there's a little bit of humor in this piece, there's nothing funny about what the Taliban is doing to those people. And mostly, the West, and especially America, has forgotten about it, because as soon as we didn't have to watch it on TV, we don't want to think about it anymore. We should be reminded, people over there suffering, not just from internet access. More Hertel right after this. Welcome back to Hertel. Okay, the streak continues. The most seen guest in the history of the Hertel program. He has all kinds of letters after his name. He has those doctor letters in front of his names because he real right smart folks. Uh, Dr. Michael Siegel, love to have you back on, my friend. We're going to talk a little science today. How be you, sir? I am good. How are you? I'm fantastic. I'm glad to be actually talking science with you because last time, a couple times you've been on, we've been talking really heavy duty stuff. Uh, let's talk about something non controversial like. The weather. Now, I do ask you about this because occasionally on your Thursday throughputs, you touch on things like climate science, like climate change, like the environment. We finally had a major hurricane, been a little while. So here we go again. Are hurricanes getting worse? Are they not getting worse? Is climate change making them worse? Is it not making it worse? What do we do with this? Because every time we have a hurricane, it seems like we're discussing this over and over again. Well, Unfortunately, the answer, those of you who know me and how I tend to answer these questions, the answer is yes and no. Uh, theoretically, according to the science, hurricanes should become worse because of global warming. It's not clear whether they will become more frequent, but with global warming, you get warmer seawater, and that's we are getting that. There's no Whatever you think about global warming, whether you think it's a hoax or whatever, the ocean is warming, that's happening. And we are also getting more water vapor in the air. That's also not in dispute. Sea levels are rising, also not in dispute, whatever you think of global warming. And these combined should theoretically make hurricanes more intense, make them ramp up faster, make uh, storm surges worse. The problem with looking at whether the data agree with this is that hurricanes are stochastic. What that is is a fancy way of saying they're random. You can't predict them. You can't even, it's even hard to predict what a whole season of hurricanes is going to do, least of all when a single one is going to occur. And so 
I once saw a lecture by Michael Mann, who's one of the foremost climate scientists, and his hurricane predictions tend to be the most accurate. And he said the reason is because they just try to predict the number of hurricanes. They don't try to predict how many severe storms are going to be because that's kind of a fool's errand. They're just so random and so unpredictable, you can't do that. Now, on average, we get 14 named tropical storms in the Atlantic every year. Uh, but that's not a normal year. Sometimes it varies. Sometimes we get as few as seven. Sometimes we get as many as 20. And so saying whether we get one or two extra or whether we got an extra intense one, you know, category four and five hurricanes are very rare. So then you're talking about one every couple of years or something like that. Saying whether you're getting an increase is really hard because they are so rare. You're talking about rare events. You know, hot days are something that's a much better metric of measuring the effect of global warming because there's 365 days a year and there's we can measure them over the whole planet. And so we can say there are more hot days than there used to be that the temperatures are going up. But with hurricanes, that's much more, or just tropical cyclones is probably the more accurate term to use here. They're much more difficult to predict, much rarer. And so you don't get these uh, things. Now, both sides can claim to have evidence to support them. 2020, for example, was the most active year we've ever had with Atlantic hurricanes. We had 31 named storms. Uh, 2005 was second place. We have had a few more Cat 4 and Cat 5 hurricanes in the last 20 years than we had in the previous 20. We also have, in, in, in consistent with theory, storms forming a little earlier and a little later in the season than we used to. We've had them forming a little further north. Uh, we just had one hit Canada a couple weeks ago, uh, which is kind of unusual. And there is some evidence that they are intensifying a little more rapidly than they used to. But the people who say it's not doing it can also point to the fact that the long-term trends are flat. We've had spikes before. We've had bad years. Uh, before the 1970s, the records are a little spotty because we didn't have satellites, so you had to rely on them hitting land or being reported by sailors. But you know, in the 1940s and the 1920s, we had really bad years. So you can't just take 2020 and say, yes, this proves it, and so forth. And ultimately, this is still up for debate. The one thing you can't say, and I see this argument a lot, and it's a bad one, is that hurricanes are getting more costly. You know, we're getting more and more money damage. That's not a problem with hurricanes or global warming. That's because we're building more stuff where hurricanes hit. We, you know, you're in North Carolina. I've been, I've been going to the Outer Banks for years, and that place has gotten very, very built up over the last 20 years. This is a place that's regularly hit by hurricanes. You know, Fort Myers, there was a uh, article on that, on how they've massively increased the amount of people and the amount of buildings they have there. That place is regularly leveled by hurricanes. And so we build stuff where hurricanes hit. We have government bailouts when things are destroyed by hurricanes. And then we say, huh, I wonder why we're spending more on hurricane disasters than we ever have before. So that has nothing to do with global warming. Yeah, let's do some perspective here. Dr. Michael Siegel, he'd be a scientist joining us. Part of the thing here is you're talking about all those named stores and people are like, well, what do you mean we had all these named stores? I didn't hear about them. Let's do a big picture perspective. You just talked about the building perspective. We'll get into that in just a second. The Atlantic Ocean is a really big place. And when you're talking about a storm system that predominantly they start basically off the coast of Africa and then work their way across. And then there's an unlimited number of tracks and courses and severities there's so many variables on these storms. 
before they even get to the tropical depression stage where they start kind of halfway tracking them. Put a little perspective on that. You're you're an astrophysicist. Look down from the satellite from the space station, just looking at that map. Put some perspective on that because we just like, oh, it's coming into the coast and it hits America. There's a lot before it ever gets to that point. And that's why you have you can have 30 storms and nobody in America knows about them because none of them actually hit our coast. This is a big area. This is a lot of natural stuff going on. We have a little bit of a perspective problem here, don't we? Yeah, and, and it's not just the Atlantic, the Pacific. You also get tropical cyclones in the Pacific. We don't hear a lot about a, a lot about them because the main area that would be under threat is Australia, and they're protected by a barrier reef, which sort of breaks up the storms before they get hit. Um, but, uh, you know, tro- so that's why most of the time when you read about this, they'll talk about tropical cyclones because you're t- that combines the Atlantic and the Pacific. Most of the, you, you know, most of the earth is covered by water and most of these storms will stay over the water or dissipate over the water. Or if they hit, will hit places that aren't America. And we have a tendency to ignore it. Yeah. And you talked on Twitter this week about how hard Cuba got hit. And no one's talking about that because it's Cuba and because Florida got hit. And so we're concerned about that. But there are countries that get absolutely devastated by this. I think some of this is a nomenclature problem. Every time we talk, I always always talk about science. I think we have some language problems with science. We learned that during COVID, right? Scientists and the general public don't speak the same language. Let's just be honest here. So when you're talking about our hurricanes getting worse, well, worse isn't a scientific term. Worse is a term of relevance. Intensity is a term. Is it getting wetter? Is it getting stronger? Is the winds faster? Those are better means. Is the term is there a terminology problem in talking about these hurricanes where we need to be a little bit more specific on what we're talking about because there is some data that they are wetter they're bringing in more landfall does that actually make them worse or better well it makes it worse flooding but it also sometimes means the winds aren't so bad the, there's a lot of little things in here that we just need to be careful with the technical speech of it isn't it yeah and if you if you read scientists talking about this they tend to be very specific about what they're talking about of getting more intense hurricanes that means higher winds and that doesn't just mean cat fours and fives that means tropical depressions becoming tropical storms tropical storms becoming cat one hurricanes uh they talk about especially about storm surges the big thing people are talking about because of the uh rise in ocean levels and when you start thinking about it in those terms the specific terms of what's going on scientifically that suggests uh courses of action that uh, that we can take and one of the worst the worst hurricane in american history was the galveston hurricane which hit in about 1900 and killed thousands of people and galveston responded to that by building this massive seawall i've been down there i've seen it uh, to to protect them from storm surges and with storm surges getting worse we have to be thinking about not just you know in florida and so forth but all up and down the coast what can we be doing to respond to this because whether whether you think global warming is real or not, whether we can address it or not, the ocean is going to rise a bit. You know, even if we 
get rid of all carbon fuels today and global warming started reversing, it will still be a while before the, uh, we will still get ocean level rise for a while. Storm surges are going to get worse. That's one of the things that we should be emphasizing. This is something very specific, very concrete, and very damaging. And so we need to be thinking in terms of how do we protect cities? How do we protect people? How do we respond to this very real danger, regardless of what's causing it? Yeah, Dr. Michael Siegel joining us. Part of this also is is the data is spotty. And I don't mean that it's inaccurate. I mean that here's a perception problem again. When you're talking about hurricanes, there's been hurricanes on the face of the earth for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. How far back is our data valid? Is it valid 100 years back? Is it valid 120 years back? Is it so whatever standard you have, we have a very small sample size here because yeah, of this that's, temporal that's, stuff. Yeah, and that's what I was sort of saying at the at the beginning that there, you know, some years you only get a few hurricanes, some years you get a lot. And so it's hard to build up the kind of data you need to to really answer these questions specifically. In terms of how far back our records go, um, we have satellite data starting in the 1970s. That's where I would say we're 100% accurate. Um, after that, once you get back into maybe the late 19th century, we have reasonably accurate records. Most of the United States and uh, most of the Americas were inhabited. We had lots of shipping going on, so we had a pretty good track. There have been papers that have tried to account for ones we missed, uh, you know, based on, on various modeling and so forth. And they show that we you know, probably missed some, but it turns out we probably didn't miss a lot before we started putting up satellite uh, data. So I would say the, the record is fairly accurate. And it does show in terms of the number of storms over the last century, it's been kind of flat, or at most increasing by you know one a year or something like that. But intensity is something that's a little, that uh, we can only measure now that we have radar and we can actually get very accurate wind speeds. And so we only have a few de decades of data on that. Yeah, Dr. Michael Siegel, you mentioned Galveston. This is a good data point. The 1900 Galveston hurricane, because they didn't have named storms there, it's just the Galveston hurricane in 1900, thought to be the deadliest hurricane in U.S. history. They don't even really know. Somewhere between six and 10,000 people died, but depending on what number you want to use. We're talking about a city of 38,000 people, by the way. So that's cat that's catastrophic by any ratio. This would have been about a category four on the, on the current serif scale. When we go back to like 1900 and something that that's catastrophic, two things jump out. One is, you know, that's almost unimaginable in modern terms, but how do we compare that? Because now we have billions and billions of dollars of damage but we usually have a lot less uh, loss of life. We have a lot more data. We have a little bit more warning. We have more recovery systems. Just compare those two from, oh, hey, this boat out in the ocean says there's this big old storm coming to now where it's a six to 10 day media event on the national news when a hurricane shows up. There, there simply is no comparison between the two. Uh, we, the, what we have now, and especially since the 1970s is so, is, this systematic data that allows us to measure these things to great accuracy, to make these predictions. And uh, you talked about unpredictability. I mean, we always see these hurricane tracks and how they're, it's very difficult to figure out where and when they're actually going to hit. Uh, if, you know, the Galveston hurricane was probably a cat four, but that's not, you know, a particularly intense hurricane. It had, it hit a very vulnerable city. It had a very 
large storm surge and it had a city that wasn't really prepared for it, but that is now. And that's just not something we have comparable to today. You know, buildings and so forth are more likely to be destroyed now because we've built more things in hurricane paths. But because we have evacuation, because we have mass transport, because everyone has a car and can get on the road and get going. You know, I was in Texas when a hurricane hit Houston and, you know, it was it was kind of bad because the roads got clogged with people evacuating. But it was just a, as powerful as a, the hurricane that hit Galveston. But the deaths were in single digits because they were warned, because they were evacuated, because our homes are, are built, you know, more safer now and so on. Yeah, Dr. Michael Siegel joining us. Now, one thing that's gotten better, we don't we can't predict when these things start. But one of the things that we have figured out is once we're tracking them, these hurricanes tend to follow previous tracks. If you go back far enough, you can usually find another hurricane that maybe went at least along the same path. Now, the intensity is different. The size of the storm. That's the other thing about these hurricanes is like if you have a 150 mile wide hurricane and a 400 mile wide hurricane, those are two very different things. Intensity levels are different. But. We've got enough data now. You said, you know, back through the 70s with satellites, we've got these pretty well mapped now. You know, even Ian, it looks very similar to like Hurricane Charlie and a couple other hurricanes. Once we start tracking them, now we've got some really good data sets to make some decisions based off of. Yeah, uh, we can have more focused evacuations. We can have uh, things in place. We can look at the Waffle House Index to see what's going on uh, and so forth. I mean, just to give you an example, uh, a real life example that my family was familiar with, uh, Hurricane Camille hit Biloxi, Mississippi uh, in 1969 and, and did an amazing amount of damage. Uh, my father, who was in the Air Force, moved there and I was maybe two years old when uh, we went there in the, in the mid-1970s. And in 1974, Hurricane Carmen came in and want Biloxi again. But the damage was way less because they learned from Camille what to do, what not to do, how to evacuate, who to keep around and so forth. And, and so on. So, yeah, knowing we know just way more about them than we used to. And, yeah, they do follow familiar tracks, but you can also they, they do have a tendency to to move and so forth and to and to be unpredictable. But the narrowness with which we can have evacuation orders and so forth, that does help, especially because if you if you if you tell people a hurricane's going to hit and you evacuate them and it misses, that makes them less likely to obey a future evacuation order. If you narrow it, if you can narrow that down and just evacuate people in a region that is particularly in danger and they come back and they see the devastation, they say, okay, that was a smart idea to follow the evacuation order. And so having that predictability, uh, even though I think a lot of climate scientists would faint if I said that we have that uh, predictability, having better predictability than we used to and being able to much more narrowly focus our efforts at evacuation and relief and so forth, I think gives a lot more credibility to the warnings and the uh, advice that we give people.
Dr. Michael Siegel joining us. There has been a little bit of news in some of the scientific uh, corners, a little bit of rumbling. I found this very interesting. I want to get your thoughts on it. That there's there's a strain of thought that the climate scientists and especially the hurricane folks are getting a little too dependent on the satellite stuff, that it's skewing observations. It's becoming a little bit too tunnel visioned on the data sets and we're losing some perspective on these storms. Is there a danger of stuff like like any data is like anything else? It can become an idol and you can you know lose perspective with it. Is there a danger of something like that where it's like we just look at the satellite and like, oh, it's going to do this, this, and this, and then all of a sudden you get surprised down the road? Is that a concern that's legitimate, do you think? Um, I don't think I am enough into the weeds on hurricane science to be able to say yay or nay on that. You you definitely want to get as, in general, you want to get as broad data as you can on any subject, especially when you're talking about something as unpredictable and stochastic as hurricanes. That, that can surprise you. So uh, I'm, I'm in favor of an all, you know, an all of the above approach when you, when you talk about getting data on these things. There never is a magic bullet that's going to give you all the information you need. Yeah, Dr. Michael Siegel. Okay, let's get into an area that you really love and enjoy, space. You already touched on it briefly, but how much is having this satellite coverage, having that view top down on these storms, just as a, both as a scientist and as a space geek, this was so revolutionary on how we cover something like hurricanes. It, it really is one of those human achievement things that we probably just take for granted now, isn't it? Well, just how we cover weather in general. I mean, our understanding of the of weather patterns of the climate overall of what's going on on Earth is so dramatically improved by being able to go a few hundred miles up and look down on it. You know, this is a perspective we did not have until the until the space age, and so there there's just it, it's it's like night and day. It's like growing a new sense in in, in how we uh, approach these issues, and again, not just on hurricanes, but just weather in general. Being able to make predictions of cold spells or rainy days and stuff like that—it's just such a huge uh, game changer. Yeah, Dr. Michael Siegel, it it still strikes me as funny because. When we talk science stuff, we all learned in you know elementary school science that most of the globe is water, and yet we don't really think about it as water until we get a hurricane or something. And most of the damage from the hurricane is not the wind; it's the water, it's the flooding, it's it's the you know the massive amounts of rain. Why do we have that cognitive dissonance that we don't understand that we basically live on a water planet with land sparsely scattered around it instead of the other way around? That, I know that's just kind of ground into us as the human condition, but I just always found it interesting. Is there a scientific basis of that is like why we don't pay more attention to the oceans than we do? Um, <laughs> that's a tricky question. I, I would say it's mostly because we don't, most of us don't live near the oceans anymore. You know, most of us don't even live near rivers anymore. Almost all human uh, civilizations before, uh, almost all human cities before now were based on access to water, built near rivers, built near, uh, you know, oceans so they could at least, even if they couldn't drink the water, they could at least fish and stuff like that. Or, and that was how primary trade was done. You know, we have now cities that basically couldn't exist unless they had massive dams bringing water into them and uh so i think that's that's changed our perspective uh, a bit yeah dr michael siegel joining us okay something a little more fun when it comes to the weather though 
Um, I've been on this tear about it, and I want to get your expert scientific opinion. I can't stand the meteorologist going out into the hurricane for the live shot. It drives me nuts. We literally almost got Jim Cantori killed this time because he got hit by the tree branch. And people were like, oh, it's just a tree. No, you don't understand. A three-inch splinter and 150-mile-an-hour wind will cut you in half. Like, this is dangerous stuff. You know, I don't want to get overly self-righteous, but to me, and I, I was talking on radio this morning about this, you cannot say this is serious information that we got to get out to people and then make it a spectacle at the same time because people are just going to naturally process those two things differently. What's your thoughts on it, Bill? Um, it's more of a cultural issue than a scientific one, but yeah, I absolutely uh, agree with this, that having them out there in, you know, when this is something you can get with cameras, you don't need a person out there to be getting thrown around by the wind and so forth. And yeah, I saw the same clip you did and I was kind of appalled by it. But yeah, and a tree branch, let me give you some another perspective on that. When we were when we lived in Biloxi, there was a crew that would go around taking coconuts off the trees. And uh, my parents always wondered why they were doing that. And then when Carmen came in and hit, they could hear acorns hitting the side of the building like cannonballs. And it was like, oh, that's why they take them all off the trees, because they'd be just, you know, smashing buildings with that stuff. Anything in that kind of wind becomes a deadly projectile. And he's very lucky he didn't get seriously injured or killed by that, you know, because that's that's. People get killed by branches just falling on them. One picked up and thrown 150 miles an hour. That's, that's, he's very lucky. And I think that should be, we've been talking about this for years. I think that should be a wake up call to people. Look, just stop. We don't need it. It's not adding anything to the conversation to send someone out there and have them struggling to stay up in 150 mile an hour wind just to show how intense it is. It's going to add to the conversation when somebody gets worse or, God forbid, you know, hurt worse or something else happens. I'm looking out my office window right now. We were nowhere near the worst of the storm and a 60-foot pine tree laying across my front yard from this thing. Like, you just can't play with storms, folks. Just show them respect. Stay at them. Stay out of their ways. It's ridiculous. Yep. Um, I absolutely agree. Dr. Michael Siegel. Okay. On a very happy note. Uh, I'm always happy to plug your stuff because you're brilliant. You're a good friend. You're an excellent writer at ordinary-times.com. You are now a YouTube superstar. You're in the money, my friend. You've got a subscriber count. Uh, your latest uh, that has gone viral, you did a thing on starships, rating them not only on scientific accuracy, but also the rule of cool. I loved it. I've got a couple of ships that you didn't cover that I want you to for next time, but I'll keep those to myself. But let folks know about the YouTube channel because that went big and I'm glad it did because it was great, great fun and you did a good job with it. Yeah, it's just under my name, uh, Michael Siegel Astronomy. If you put that in YouTube, you'll find me. Um, I've been sort of had about 150 subscribers and was getting 100, 200 views per video. And then this one just popped up, I guess, uh, probably in people's recommendeds. And so as of, as of right now, it's had 25,000 views and I've gotten over a thousand subscribers. And uh, it's basically, yeah, I took 20 spaceships from various science fiction franchises and uh, talked about whether they were scientifically accurate or not, but also gave them bonus points if they were cool enough for me to ignore some of the scientific inaccuracies. And uh, it was a lot of fun to make. I didn't expect it to be that popular, but uh, apparently people really loved it because uh, I think in part because they can argue with me about which ones I got wrong and tell me which ones I need to include in the next one. Uh, I'm actually now uh, obligated to watch The Expanse because the Rosinante from that uh, series is the most requested spaceship by far. 
Yeah, I know one of those people is a mutual friend that's probably bugging you about that too, but we'll <laughs> leave their name out of it. Um, the thing about sci-fi, I, I I've kind of taken up to sci-fi and fantasy to a lesser extent, but especially sci-fi, kind of like I do pro wrestling. It's like, I know it's not real. I know it's manipulated. But somewhere in there for at least a moment, I've got to be able to lose it and forget that I'm watching something. That's just kind of my own standard. I know rule of cool or whatever, but I was like, for for somewhere in there for at least a moment, I've got to forget I'm watching a show. You know, give me give me something real inside of the fantasy of it. When it comes to space travel, and I know you've talked on this a little bit, but I wanted to ask you it this way specifically. Because you do know this, because you do fly a spaceship, which is just beyond cool, and I'm just very jealous of you. What is it for you that you can suspend belief when you see something like a spaceship, like space travel, something in sci-fi, and you go, okay, that's either cool enough that I excuse it, or wow, that's an interesting take I hadn't thought of, because sci-fi does push the envelope on thinking about, well, maybe that's possible too. There's a little give and take there. Yeah, I think um, one of the things I look for is imagination, you know, people doing something interesting and having new ideas and exploring those ideas. Another thing is, you know, sort of commitment to the bit. You know, Star Wars is scientifically very inaccurate in terms of the way it portrays spaceships, but it goes into it so unreservedly, you know, and and commits to it such with such uh, grandeur, and is so. And the initial trilogy, at least, is so well made that you can enjoy the story. And one of the things I talk about sometimes in science fiction is that science fiction writers need to think big and write small. That is, think about big things like galaxies and black holes and massive starships and so forth, but write small in that you focus on the characters and the drama and the situation and having it relatable. You know, if you make me care about the people in a story and make the story interesting and something I want to, I want to watch and I want to see the next episode because I want to know what happens. I'm going to forgive a lot than if the characters are boring and I don't care. Then no matter how accurate it is or how spectacular it is or how much you spent on the special effects, if I don't care about what's happening, I'm not going to watch the next episode. Yeah, it's funny. We were we were debating the entry, uh, intro. Sorry. <laughs> we were debating the uh, opening scenes of the movies, which ones was the best. And people, when it comes to sci-fi, people talk about the original Star Wars and New Hope. And um, George Lucas stole this from Kurosawa, but anyway, that opening shot of the starship. But then when you have Vader walking in and I mean, it's very unsettled. You have a pure white hallway and the guy in all black comes walking down the hallway, stepping over dead bodies. You don't need dialogue. You don't need it's, It's almost, you know, the old pantomime theater, like just the black and it's literally black and white, you know, the good guys, the bad guys, everything is explained to you without any dialogue, without any cues, without anything else. You don't even need to know that it's a spaceship. It's a tableau. And you know, everything you need to know in that one moment. And if you're, even though you're doing sci-fi and light speed and all this crazy stuff, you got to have that moment that sets everything else. And then it works because now you're sucked in. Yeah, and Vader has another great entrance in Empire Strikes Back where it, it's showing the fleet and it shows him. And someone pointed out there's a sort of subtle display of power there that he's filmed from the back as if he's too cool to actually have to look at the camera. And um, yeah, James Lilex, the writer, had a great point about um, when he was writing about the prequels. He said, Star Wars works best when it's almost like a silent movie. 
that you have Lucas's visuals and John Williams music and you know it just flows from there and when especially when you look at the at the movies that Lucas made when it flows like that you could almost turn off the you could almost make it a silent movie and it would be just as good yeah i i actually worked off that too when we were talking about the mandalorian i was like oh they figured one thing out stop talking <laughs> like just stop talk uh it, another one was uh downton abbey that everybody they when they did the second movie uh uh fellows that created the series he goes he goes i have the first five minutes of every movie all i need is a sweeping wide shot in that score of the house yeah like, that's all i need <laughs> like you can't you can't write anything better than that and it's the same way with star wars like you know you have those shots of vader you have those shots of those you know that first shot of the starship moving through space which remember back then nobody had ever seen that it's cliche now nobody had ever seen that that was blowing people's minds people were losing their minds in the theater you don't have to say anything just let the moment breathe we have too many movies and tv shows that don't let anything breathe it drives me nuts yeah, and I speak especially with this, uh, with the tendency to rapidly edit and cut from shot to shot to shot, so you can't really tell what's going on. That's one of the things. No matter what people will say about the prequels, Lucas's sense of letting the shot play out, letting you see what's going on, letting you get an understanding of how the situation is laid out, like in a battle, which where the sides are, what they're fighting over. That um, you know, you can criticize his dialogue and some of his plotting, but his visual sense. And being able to tell a story visually, which is something you mentioned Kurosawa, something he very much borrowed from Kurosawa, who had that ability, uh, that's that is unchanged. Yeah. And I, I enjoy Star Wars. Um, I'm enjoying most of the expanded stuff they're doing. They've had some hits and misses, but for the most part, it's been pretty good. They went back to being serialized and it just works better, I think. But that's another topic for another day. I will openly petition as I have privately for you to do a starship captains one, because as a scientist, that ship ain't going anywhere without a captain. And boy, howdy, have we had some shoddy looking sci-fi captains that we need to deal with. So can't get anybody else to talk about, call me. I'll come on there and talk about that one. Cause I got a couple that I just, I'm ready to drill from pillar to post or whatever it is they use in space. My friend, Michael Siegel, let people know where they can find you, your writings, your uh, now monetized YouTube channel because you're making the big bucks. It's not enough that you got all those letters after your name. Now you're going to be rich and famous too. I hate <laughs> you. Uh, let folks know where they can follow you, my friend. Uh, basically, just go to www.ordinarytimes.com. That's where my writing is. I post all my videos there, so that will give you the links to the YouTube channel and also to uh, Twitter and so forth. I, I like to have Ordinary Times as sort of my uh, gateway since one, it makes things easier, but also it highlights the amazing work a lot of the other Ordinary Times writers do as well. Yeah, we got a good group. Always appreciate your time, sir. It was good talking science, not politics for a change. We've been doing a lot of politics with you lately. Do it again soon. The street continues. Well done. Uh, glad to be on. Thanks for having me. Thanks, sir. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.
back to Heard Tell. I'm Andrew Donaldson. You know we try to usually end on some kind of a good note when we have time to. Remember the ALS Ice Bucket Challenge from a couple of years ago? I know that was 20 or 30 viral things ago, but it was a big deal back in 2014. God, it doesn't seem like it was that long ago. Took social media by storm. This is from The Blaze. The challenge consisted of a participant being doused by a bucket of ice water poured over their head, and while the challenge was intended to raise money and awareness for funds for ALS research, some questioned just how much of an effect such a fad could have. Well, the ALS Association reported last week that $2.2 million of the funds that were raised were invested in the development of a new drug just received Food and Drug Administration approval. The drug, previously referred to as AMX0035, is now called Revivir. Look, I can't pronounce it. It's an R with a Y and a V and an RRI, and you know us hillbillies can't roll our R's, so just trust me, it's Relivrio maybe? Close as I can do, folks. And was developed by Amalax Pharmaceuticals. See, now I can't even see pharmaceuticals because I messed up my R's trying to say the other things. When I say hillbillies can't roll their R's, I mean it. Anyway, this approval provides another important treatment option for ALS, a life-threatening disease that currently has none. It's a brutal disease. Dr. Billy Dunn, director of the Office of Neuroscience in the FDA's Center for Drug Evaluation Research, said the ALS Association credits the Ice Bucket Challenge with being a significant reason why this drug was developed and able to be developed and tested. We thank the millions of people who donated, participated, and enabled us to invest in promising therapies like AMX0035 that will immediately help people living with ALS, says Catalina Ballas, president and CEO of the ALS Association. This is a victory for the entire ALS community, which came together to advocate for early approval of AMX0035. We still have a lot of work to do, but we're off to a good start. The new drug is not a cure for the fatal disease, also known as Lou Gehrig's disease after the baseball player. However, the drug does slow down the effects. The ice bucket challenge has transformative in the field of ALS genomics. We build one of the largest resources of ALS whole genome sequence and data. This resources have been shared with partners all over the world. It is accelerating ALS gene discovery and has led to the largest ALS sequencing study in the United States, said Himalay Patnani. I'm just doomed in this segment, folks. Can't pronounce anything. I apologize. Director of the Center for Genomics and Neurodegenerative Disease at the New York Genome Center. Over $115 million was raised by the Ice Bucket Challenge. The ALS Association said it is funding 130 different research projects in 12 different countries, as well as 40 potential treatments because of this money. As reported to NPR, that's from The Blaze, that is an amazing amount of money. It's cool to see something that was viral and people participating in reaping good fruit. And if you participated, good for you. That'll do it for Herd Tell for today. Love to hear from you. Leave a comment and a rating wherever and however you're watching or listening to the program. You can also reach us directly at HerdTellShow, gmail.com, Show on the Twitter. Love to hear from you however you reach out. Just keep your bearing. Be nice. We've done whole segments and whole shows just based off things that you wanted to cover, had questions about. Let us know. We'd love to hear from you. You ain't listening. We ain't got nobody to talk to. So appreciate getting to interact with all of you. Until that happens, or until you join us again on Hertel, wherever you are, across the street or around the world, we hope you are well. We hope you are well fed. And we will talk to you again real soon on Hertel. All the music on Hertel is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. Solus Lament.